Right turn. Oh shit. Hello and welcome to a special edition bonus episode. This is Ramble on the Road and I'm your host Jeff Nesb. On this special episode, we are joined by Mr. Jeffrey James Hilton. Always a crowd favorite. We are happy to have him. We recorded this a couple weeks ago and it's really good. I like the way it turned out. Happy birthday to Jeff because this is gonna come out on his birthday. I apologize for the rattles. I'm in my wife's car and it's rattly. The paper you're about to hear tells a story that is all too familiar about a Hollywood writer who accomplishes his dream and he makes it in Hollywood and he gets jobs on television shows, writing, and he makes a bunch of money and he ends up falling into heroin addiction. He needs it for creativity and all the other excuses he comes up with, of which there are many. And it ends up really wrecking his life. I use this book as a vehicle to explain the process of addiction through something called allostasis, and then to go on to explain another way of using drugs, which is called instrumentalization. And I know what you're thinking, instrumentalization, why not just instrumentation? And I went back and forth on that the whole time I was writing this paper, I remember that clearly. And I don't remember why I ended up settling on the more complicated and weirder sounding word, but I did. So you'll enjoy that throughout the entire paper. And it's annoying, but you're gonna have to just deal with it like I do. So instrumentalization is where you take a drug and you figure out exactly what is good about it, what it can do for you, and what is bad about it, what the consequences of use will be. And then you decide, okay, that's a tool and it's only used for these specific purposes. And then you stick to that and you figure out what the abuse potential is and the addiction potential so that you can regulate your use in order to stay below any kind of threshold for dependence formation. And it's a very smart way to use your chemicals. It's really the only smart way to use your chemicals. So I describe that and while I'm reading it, I just, I can just picture the person I was at this time and I was self-medicating for my ADHD and I was depressed and I was lonely and I was, you know, drinking alcohol on occasion, uh, using just really whatever I could get my hands on and whatever I could afford and use safely that wasn't gonna mess up my life. Cause I, I really, I wasn't about to go just become a loser and lose everything that I had worked so hard to accomplish. And the chemicals were helping me to do that. But I had so much guilt and I had so much shame and just embarrassment and low self-worth. And I, I feel it when I'm reading this and it just, it makes me sad because it didn't have to be like that. I used a very clinical and analytical understanding of drugs and their effects on the body and the mind to understand my own life and to make sense of it in a way that didn't lead me to project a future that was very unpleasant for me. Like I, I didn't like the, the traditional narrative that if you're a drug user, you're doomed to die in a gutter somewhere or, or be a, you know, at a trap house, whatever your equivalent doom scenario is for your drug culture. I really wanted to believe that I could continue to use them as tools in a way that was healthy enough. Granted, it doesn't always feel healthy. And, and there were a lot of times when I, when I did worry, 
that I was going to slip into unhealthy patterns, and I'm sure I did at times. I know I did at times, especially when opiates got in the mix. But that's I'm going down a bunny trail, so I'm just going to let you get to the show. In addition to the paper on drug instrumentalization slash permanent midnight, you can also look forward to these topics because me and Jeff just kind of go in after the paper wraps up. We talk about it a little bit, and then we hit several other topics pretty hard, go pretty in-depth. So happy birthday to Jeff. But we're going to talk about Jeff's romantic life, uh, strange cultural practices of the Pacific Northwest. Oh, my God. Sorry. Making a turn. Turn off this road. People just think they can just do whatever they want, like they own the place. Left turn. Fuck you. What else we got here? The secrets of imitation crab, wild-like fish, and other interesting seafood conspiracies. Coming straight from a fisherman. Ooh, here's a good one. Sugar, the other white drug. We cover how our pancakes breakfast food, the surprising benefits of prayer. We talk about life-changing events and some of the dangers facing women today. So, yeah, it's a full podcast. You're in for it. So get ready to enjoy. And if you see Jeff Hilton today, go wish him a happy birthday and tell him his pecs look good. All right, guys, enjoy the episode. Don't forget to check out RambleByTheRiver.com to find all the episodes from the show. And as always, the free episodes come out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and on the website. Thank you guys so much for being a Patreon and supporting the show. I really love making these Patreon episodes. They're my favorite. So you guys are my favorite. All right, without further ado, enjoy the show, guys. I love you. I'll talk to you soon. <laughs> Pot of gold. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this special edition of Rainbow by the River. This one is just going out for the Patreon members, and it is kind of different. What I'm going to do today is read a piece that I wrote in 2011 or 12. I'm going to read it, and then we're going to talk about it. I found this in my old files from college a couple months ago, and I set it aside just because I found it interesting. Because when I read it, it, it just kind of it had a weird effect on me. I felt kind of strange because I remembered writing it, and I remembered the thoughts that I had while doing it, and I remembered how I thought it appeared. And I think that it was different than I was, than I was uh, envisioning it at the time. So Jeff Hilton, I have here joining me today, and he's going to uh, be here with me, and we're going to read over this paper and talk about it. Did you get an emotional reaction, like a physical reaction when you read it? Kind of. It, I felt like uh, sympathy for the old version of myself. It's like, ah, you poor son of a bitch. You were so stressed out. Like, you were so afraid of everything. And I, I remembered being him while I was reading it, and I remembered what that felt like. And uh, a lot of the stuff, the, the paper I thought was actually pretty good, but it was it was kind of a, a cry for help disguised as academic material. Well, just putting it out there, I am very proud of that guy. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that guy, that guy got it done, found a way. That is true. That is true. With the whole world going against him. Do you remember the book Permanent Midnight? Did you ever read that? No. Uh, I, I got real into it i read it for for college and it was about um jerry what was his name staller jerry stall stall the hollywood guy yeah he wrote he was a writer on that show alf he kind of looks like alf he's got the bald head and the big nose 
Kind of. He's probably bald now. He I think had, I know what you're talking about. Ben Stiller actually played him in a movie uh, in the early 90s, but he was a heroin addict, terrible heroin addict, and the whole book is just about his coming to terms with that and realizing that it was the wrong choice and he was going to lose his daughter for it and all these things. It was a very, very emotional book. And in the end, he decides that he's going to, I think, quit doing heroin. But I, I don't remember if that was really the final conclusion. Anyway, I am going to read the paper. And Jeff, feel free to break in anytime you want. If you have comments or questions or uh, additions, just, just go for it. Roger that. Okay, the paper starts off with a quote. So was, <clears throat> I'm just going to go. I'm driving back toward Hollywood when my car, as if of its own volition, swings right up Union, 6th and Union, and for you non-professionals... Oh, wait. I'm going to start over. I got to get it bigger. I can't see it. I, I already want to do heroin. <laughs> <laughs> That's the problem with talking about drugs is when you've quit doing them, it makes you want to do it. Already, them I'm like, again. all right, in Hollywood, on 6th Street, I dig it. Yeah. That's dangerous. Mm. I'm just going to try to make my zoom a little bigger. I think it's amazing you still have that, that file. I have everything I've ever wrote. The fact that you've been able to maintain that through the change you know, of technology and all that kind of stuff is, uh, I guess a file is still a file. But Well, the reason I actually, okay, that's I have a caveat there. I have everything I've ever wrote, I've ever written, I'm sorry, but I have everything I've ever written, but the vast majority of it is locked on a drive that I cannot access. I have my laptop that I had from senior year of high school through college, and I can't remember the password. But Story of my life. This one happened to be saved in my Google drafts. So. I'm driving back toward Hollywood when my car, as if of its own volition, swings right. Up Union, 6th and Union. Why does that sound so weird? Swings right, up Union. Oh, I got it. I see why. Sixth and Union, for you non-professionals, is yet another hub of smack activity. A reliable corner in a pinch. And at that moment, I felt pinched. Felt driven to use. Driven to cruise by the homeboys squatting on their haunches with their bandanas pulled low over their eyes. In this passage from Permanent Midnight, Jerry Stahl describes his sudden urge to procure heroin after being clean for a year. This compulsive drug-seeking and taking behavior is common in Jerry's story and is known to be one of the defining characteristics of drug addiction. Despite everything that we know about drugs, there is still one question that continues to plague addiction researchers. Why do people use drugs? Throughout Permanent Midnight, Jerry continuously evaluates his own motivations for turning to drugs. Often he acknowledges his current circumstances, such as working on the set of ALF, and explains his need to be high in order to endure them, while at other times he suggests that the events of his past, such as the untimely death of his father, may be driving his use at a deeper level. Motivation is the result of a complex interaction among a wide range of factors. Personality, conditioning, environment, culture, social influence, cognition, survival instincts, and multiple types of memory all seem to play a role in motivating behaviors. The formation of drug addiction follows a somewhat predictable course, characterized by a repeated cycle of stages. Those stages are preoccupation or anticipation, intoxication or binge, withdrawal and relapse. This is from a Kube and Mole paper in 2001. Not all who use drugs go on to become addicted. In fact, most do not. While some continue to use drugs at increasingly high levels and do become addicted, many find ways to manage or end their drug intake and go on to lead healthy and productive lives. I'm sorry, is this, is this from Jerry or is this from you? This is from me. Okay. So the quote, the quote ended at, 
with the, the homeboys on the haunches okay. pulling their okay. bandanas over their eyes. Um, this is just me. And so this is an academic paper. So if there are oh, okay. things that sound like bullshit, sure. speak up because they need to not be bullshit. This, everything in here has to be cited and referenced and everything. So it needs to actually be real. Not all, though, okay. not all who use drugs go on to become addicted. In fact, most do not. While some continue to use drugs at increasingly productive lives. This divergence is illustrated in Permanent Midnight when Jerry says, all the older guys I admired took vast quantities of drugs. Of course, I can't name any of them now. They've all gone on to take their true place as captains of industry, stalwart and substantial Republicans, whom it would not be cricket to expose as youthful flame brains. That's a quote. Why are some able to curtail their drug use to facilitate a healthy lifestyle, while people like Jerry are doomed to fall victim to addiction? Understanding what drives a person to use drugs for the first time and what motivates them to keep using is important to help us learn how a habit becomes an addiction and what factors make the transition more likely. Despite the large body of research on drug addiction, little has been reported regarding non-addicted forms of drug use. For example, those who continue to use drugs occasionally for years but do not become addicted, a group that, in fact, represents the majority of drug users. A national survey conducted by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration in 2005 showed that of all the people classified as current alcohol drinkers, only 14.9% met the criteria for addiction. Furthermore, among the 20.4 million current users of illicit drugs, only 34.3% were estimated to qualify as addicts. Although there has been some limited success in treating drug addiction, the most effective strategy is prevention. The adaptations within the drug-addicted brain are reported to cause alterations in mood, motivation, memory, emotional regulation, and overall cognitive function. That's from Coob and Creek, 2007. These effects make treatment difficult, are usually long-lasting if not irreversible, and place the addict at a high potential for relapse. It was proposed by Muller and Schumann in 2011 that non-addicted drug use is a normal, possibly even adaptive behavior, and that addiction is not the inevitable result, but instead represents a shift towards pathological brain functioning. Drug instrumentation theory represents a framework for understanding drug use as advantageous behavior that allows a user to alter his or her mental state in order to facilitate the accomplishment of non-drug related goals. That's important. The instrumentation, the instrumentalization, the instrumentalization of a drug is a two-step process. Step one is the seeking and taking of that drug to change the current mental state into a previously learned state, which then facilitates step two, better performance of other previously established behaviors and better goal achievement. Mental states or modes of action guide subjective perception, memory retrieval, and autonomic and behavioral responses. These mental states are regulated by the action of the modulary neurotransmitter systems, such as dopaminergic and serotonergic and acetylcholinergic, and the noradrenergic, which can all be manipulated by the administration of psychoactive drugs. For every situation that requires a specific behavior in order to achieve a goal, there is a similar mental state that allows that person to most effectively perform this behavior with respect to the outcome. Psychoactive drugs can be used to facilitate a shift from a current mental state to one that is more likely to lead to an effective goal management. Amen. Thank you. For example, if the goal is to get home from work by the behavior driving a car, the person can perform this behavior more effectively in an attentive state rather than in a tired and distracted state. 
and may use a drug such as caffeine or amphetamine as an instrument to improve performance and ensure achievement of the desired goal. Although drug use through instrumentation is also reinforcing, it differs from addiction in that the decision to take the drug is motivated by explicit goal-oriented cognition and not by compulsive reward-seeking or by the desire to relieve symptoms of withdrawal. That seems... I feel like there could be a gray area there too, kind of a little, bit, sure. a little bit of both. I feel like it maybe always is in that gray area because they, they're so, they drugs are so like emotionally stirring that yeah. it's hard to pull apart and make it seem like such a, it, it, this almost feels like it's trying to separate it from that. And I don't think you really can. No. Anyway, carrying on. Early in the memoir, Jerry's drug use pattern seemed to be somewhat instrumental. At one point, he said that the heroin was still a sometimes drug, which meant that it still worked. That's a quote. He was instru instrumentalized. I don't know why the fuck I used the word instrumentalizing so many times. I shouldn't have used it at all. That's It's too much of a word. Instrumentalizing. He was instrumentalizing heroin as a way to alter his mental state and make himself more socially interactive and more interested in the work that he would be rather not doing. This pattern of use is in stark contrast to the end of the book, after Jerry has lost his family, his home, his career, and his health, but continues to use drugs as an escape from that pain of reality. His goals and motivations completely flipped, and he no longer used the drugs to help him interact socially or perform professionally. Any work or social situation was conducted for the purposes of achieving his primary goal of getting high. Much like Jerry, the average junkie begins his habit in the driver's seat. A healthy, non-disordered person can make decisions about whether or not to use a drug and is able to consider the benefits as well as the consequences of those decisions. Sometime later, depending on the drug and the severity of the habit, this sense of control somewhat disappears, often before the user is even aware of it. The brain undergoes structural adaptations and the disease of addiction begins to take hold. Several factors are thought to impact his process. Kube and Creek, 2007, proposed a neuroadaptive view of the changes that occur within the brain's stress response systems and reward pathways during the transition to drug dependence. Their theory stems from the opponent process theory, Solomon and Corbett, 1974, which states that emotions work by opposing pairs, example, joy and sorrow, fear and relief. When the first reaction, i.e. the A process, is triggered, resulting in a central nervous system's excitation, it's followed by the opposing, i.e. B process reaction, which cancels out the A process, brings the organism systems back to baseline and restores homeostasis. That's basically just trying to explain how our bodies are always trying to seek equilibrium and our minds as well. Allostasis, as opposed to homeostasis, is defined as the adaptive process of maintaining stability through change at cost to the organism. This occurs when an organism must vary all of the parameters of its physiological systems in order to match them appropriately with the chronic demands and establish a new set point that is not within the standard homeostatic range. As it applies to addiction, allostasis maintains reward function stability through changes in reward and stress system neurocircuitry. When a person takes a drug for the first time, they show a positive hedonic response, or a high, that's the A process, and a subsequent minor negative hedonic response, or acute withdrawal, that's the B process. So a way to understand that is like, let's say you you really like candy, you, you eat a piece of chocolate, you get that initial bump in dopamine, and then it's followed shortly after by a slight drop in dopamine. 
And that is just to reset your, your homeostatic measures. Okay, so yeah. When a person takes a drug for the first time, they show a positive hedonic response or a high and a subsequent minor negative hedonic response or acute withdrawal, the B process. Each producing increased and decreased activity of reward-related neurotransmitters, respectively. The brain's stress response circuits have been shown to temporarily activate during the B process response as systems return to homeostatic levels. However, if additional administrations of the drug are repeatedly used to retain or prolong the A process and limit the B process, the organism will adapt to these new demands and transition to an allostatic reward state in which reward threshold is increased and affective baseline falls. Under this new allostatic state, the B process is never allowed to return to the original homeostatic level from before drug taking and the set point continues to fall further from the homeostatic range until cessation of drug taking occurs and withdrawal ensues. Stress circuits that are involved in this process, for example, the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis or HPA, corticotropin releasing factor, CNS, becomes chronically dysregulated, leaving the organism in a persistently stressed state. Following acute withdrawal, Systems have not yet been restored to their proper operating range, and the organism experiences a state referred to as protracted abstinence. It's from Coob and Creek, 2007. During which they may experience depression, anxiety, anhedonia, sleep disturbances, cognitive deficits, and persistent drug cravings. This can last days, months, or even years, and is likely to be one of the main contributing factors to relapse. Considering the work of Muller and Schumann, 2011 and Kuban Creek 2007 with strict self-regulation it is theoretically possible to use a drug in a manner that does not cause immediate harm to the user okay this is where I started getting it Justifying. yes I'm, I'm trying to make my life make sense with this paragraph um, so with strict self-regulation it is theoretically possible to use a drug in a manner that does not cause immediate harm to the user Within the framework of instrumentation, each drug has a unique set of beneficial uses as well as a set of consequences associated with improper use. For example, psychostimulant drugs like cocaine and amphetamine are very useful for improving cognitive function, as you can see by me writing this paper. Just kidding, I didn't put that part. <laughs> for improving cognitive function, increasing alertness, combating fatigue, and improving mood at low to moderate doses. But when administered at high doses, psychostimulants produce a brief euphoric effect followed by a state of hyperarousal, restlessness, anxiety, decline in cognitive abilities, and can even cause delusions and hallucinations. So, if a psychostimulant drug is instrumentalized for its positive effect on mental state, and the organism's homeostatic systems are allowed to return to baseline before additional administrations, stress circuits should remain properly regulated and addiction should not occur. However, if the drug is administered at excessively high doses or too frequently, there will be a resulting tolerance to the positive effects, which will likely lead to an escalation in consumption and a shift to an allostatic state and eventual addiction. This pattern is common to all drugs of abuse, although the specific mechanisms and neurotransmitters involved may vary. In light of these studies, it is not difficult to see why Jerry fell so deep into his addiction. Muller and Schumann, 2011, suggest that healthy drug instrumentalization requires that people limit their drug intake by systematic evaluation of their personal instrumentalization pattern. This is consistent with the assumption that overuse leads to allostasis. 
Aside from the fact that this suggestion places too much faith in people's ability to objectively evaluate their own behavior in terms of immediate and long-term rewards and consequences, it also assumes a high degree of self-control, which is not something that people in withdrawal are known for. Jerry never seemed to give much thought to the idea of being a healthy drug user. Granted, he liked to get loaded and go for a jog, but he never showed any signs of trying to maintain his habit in moderation. Even when he did not seem to be using the drugs for instrumental purposes, like making it easier to write, he always made sure to get as high as he could. This exaggerated instrumentation is likely to have been a major contributing factor in his development of addiction. As consumption is increased in both frequency and dose, the capacity of a drug for instrumentalization is eventually exceeded and no further improvement of the behavior can be achieved. If this pattern of use is maintained, the toxic effects of the drug begin to damage the organism and addiction is the likely result. Personality, experience, and emotion all play into motivation. It was evident that Jerry was coping with some pretty serious emotional trauma, i.e. the death of his dog and his father, when he began using drugs in his youth. Uh, quote, relentless daily drug use through high school and beyond, way beyond, was my way of not finding out, end quote. Another quote, the whole point of drugs is to keep you from thinking. The dead stay buried, along with all their ugly artifacts." End quote. He also seemed to be dealing with a strong sense of self-hatred, and he used drugs to escape from that, while at the same time reinforcing it. A quote, I kept getting high to kill my shame at the fact that I kept getting high. End quote. Ooh, that's poignant. I like that one. Quote, forget about being cool. Forget about being underground. It was a way of staying ashamed, end quote. Abuse at a young age likely altered his emotional and psychological development and laid the foundation for the addiction that would develop in the years to come. Jerry's biggest push towards addiction was his job as a television writer, which both inflated his self-loathing and his bank account. One thing that keeps most addicts from abusing the drug to the extremes that Jerry did is the fact that they can't afford it, quote, Meanwhile, my habit, fueled by the astronomical sums I was hauling home each week, had launched me into nonstop shooter status." End quote. Jerry's perceived need for continuous emotional blunting, paired with his unlimited access to drugs, led him into an extreme spiral of addiction. Although it is theoretically possible to use drugs in a non-addictive way, the road to addiction is a slippery slope. The wide variation in personality, experiences, and genetics make it difficult to say who is capable of maintaining a habit of drug instrumentalization and who is not. Based on the information gained from these articles, Permanent Midnight, and related research, it appears that people use drugs for a wide variety of reasons, some unknown even to the user. Future research should investigate the ability of the person to make a systematic evaluation of his or her personal instrumentation pattern, since these evaluations are considered to be prerequisite to proper instrumentalization, it is important to know what conditions make accurate evaluations more or less likely, and whether or not a person in early stages of addiction is able to make these evaluations at all. If we do more to understand the progression from first-time user to full-blown addict, we may be able to develop new therapy techniques to treat those suffering from addiction, or perhaps even prevent addiction from becoming established in the first place. And then it's my work cited. So if you made it through that, thank you. I appreciate it. It was a lot. But yeah, I just, it's, I, I think that's super interesting that I wrote that. And now when I look at some of those things, I like, 
I can feel emotions tied to some of these sections where I was literally just trying to make my life make sense to me. Mm -hmm. Did you relate to any of that? Yeah, quite a bit. I'm just curious, what'd you get on the paper? Oh, I got an A. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there was a lot there. So the things I took away from this is, first of all, I agree with everything I said in here. I think that I was right about instrumentation and being like drugs. I've said it on this podcast many times. Drugs are tools. Like you can you can take a hammer and you can use it to build a house or you can use it to bash your neighbor's head in. Mm -hmm. And drugs are the same way. They're, you can use them to get you through the day or you can use them to block out the world. I mean, it's usually one or the other. But it doesn't have to be. I don't know. What do you? What did you think? Uh, I'll be honest. I kind of blocked myself off a little bit emotionally because some of that stuff it was hitting a little too close to home. I didn't want to. Uh, I didn't want to reflect on my my drug use at this period of time. So I kind of. Um, I tried thinking outside of myself, and that was hard to do. Well, you um, knew me at this time. You knew me in these years. Doesn't it seem like I was trying to? make an academic argument for just choosing to live my life the way I'm going to live my life. Like I was using drugs at this time for everything. Mm -hmm. I was using them to get through school. I was using them to get through social activities. I was always using drugs for something, but I also really, it, it caused me a great deal of stress and I, I hated myself for it. Like I felt horrible about who I was as a person. I felt, I felt like I was tricking the world into thinking I was a normal, good person, but I'm actually a piece of shit drug user who's hiding that from everybody. Do you think just the fact that you're using drug, like at the time, made you a piece of shit? That's what I felt. Because yeah. you weren't like doing anything that was piece of shit worthy. Not horrible things. No. I mean, it... Maybe little things, but I mean... Overall, no, right. not that bad. Not anything that sober people don't do. Yeah. Um, it was just, I think... Yeah, I don't know. I just want to go back in time and give him a hug. It's like, dude, everything's fine. Chill the fuck out. Yeah, take your drugs and enjoy them. You're going to be fine. <laughs> Quit thinking your world's about to collapse. I just felt like everything was about to crash down around me all but the time. maybe if you didn't have that mindset, then you would have been a full-blown addict. Like yeah. Maybe that was the, the, the emotion that kept you regulated versus somebody who didn't, who wasn't thinking like that. Because I know, like, I'm at that stage now where I'm not, like, at that stage. But what I mean is, like, over the years, I've done drugs uh i'm not i haven't been sober for 10 years and uh every time all I've right you freeloaders that's all you get that's the kind of stuff somebody's got to pay the bills if you want to hear the rest of this episode go to ramblebytheriver.com click the subscribe link at the top of the page and that will take you to patreon.com slash ramblebytheriver where you can select a subscription tier and get listening somebody's got to pay the bills and these ramble on the road episodes are for the patreon subscribers so i put out a little just a little teaser, a little tidbit, just to get you interested. But if you want the whole shebang, you got to pay the price. And it's pretty affordable. So head on over to patreon.com slash ramblebytheriver or ramblebytheriver.com and click the subscribe link at the top of the page. It'll take you right over. And you can hear the rest of this episode, along with all the other bonus episodes that are available only on Patreon. These Patreon episodes are a lot of fun. So please enjoy. Don't forget to like, subscribe, share on social media, all that good stuff. And as always, have a wonderful day. Thank you guys for listening. I really do appreciate it. If you're not ready to pull the trigger on that Patreon subscription, and I totally understand that, I know times are tight, don't worry, there's another free episode coming out later this week. Episode 69, Farting Through Silk Part 2 with Mooch Smith. 
So you have that to look forward to. That should be out before Friday. Yeah, you guys have a great week. And uh, happy birthday to Jeff Hilton. All right, guys. Thanks again. Bye-bye.